This is Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The project makes a case that you don't often hear in history textbooks, that slavery was foundational to America. So it wasn't surprising that we ignited a fierce debate among historians about these issues. But that's the power of the New York Times, to spark an important dialogue with bold, rigorous reporting that forces us to examine our assumptions. To learn more, go to nytimes.com slash worth it. Getting eight hours of sleep every night? Check. Eat a quality, plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four or more times a week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure that you lead a long life. So isn't it time that you were financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Q Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash naked scientist to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared with other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash naked scientist to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthily. That's healthiq.com slash naked scientists. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 8th of May. Welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. With me, Dave Ansell. And I'm Diana O'Carroll. This week we're answering your science questions for you, including finding out what keeps the Earth's core hot, uh, how does blood clot, and why does a boat or a plane ride sometimes leave you feeling like you're bouncing about, even though you are back on terra firma. And in this week's science news, why climate change means that the food in your shopping basket is costing you more than it should, and how nicotine rewires the brain in minutes to trigger addictive changes. Plus, in kitchen science, we'll be showing you a clever balancing trick. Grab a broom or a mop if you want to have a go. And, of course, if you have any science questions or feedback for us here at The Naked Scientists, get in touch now. You can tweet at Naked Scientists right on our Facebook page. That's at thenakedscientists.com forward slash Facebook. Or you can drop us an email and the address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. And this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Diana O'Carroll and with Dave Ansell. And let's kick off with a look at some of this week's hottest science news stories. Diana. Yes, well, this week researchers from Stanford University have revealed that in the last 30 years, corn and wheat crops have dropped by 3.8 and 5.5% respectively in yields in response to climate change. And this decrease in production has occurred in spite of technological advances, pest control measures, CO2 enhancement and the use of fertilizer. 
Publishing in Science, David LaBelle and his team note that all major growing regions for wheat, maize, soybeans and rice have experienced increases in temperature since 1980. The notable exception was the US, which experienced cooling. And although corn and wheat have seen a drop, soybean and rice crops have remained roughly unaffected across the globe. So to reach their conclusions, the researchers developed two models. Now, they developed one which mimicked the observed increases in climate temperatures and one which assumed temperatures had stayed the same since 1980. And they also used statistical tests to see if precipitation, that's rainfall changes, affected crop yields. The results demonstrated that increases in temperature had reduced global yields of wheat by 5.5%, and increased rainfall also had a negative effect on crops, but it was much less marked than temperature. So given that the US is a notable exception, it shows that analysing climate change data on a country-by-country scale will be misleading, and the team have shown that temperatures in the United States haven't increased in a statistically significant way, and subsequently their crops haven't suffered. But the rest of the world has seen a very obvious and worrying change, and this doesn't mean that the US is unaffected, since decreases in food availability across the world will inevitably have an effect on the cost of imports. In fact, the authors argue that it already has, and that there's um, a 6% increase in food prices, um, even if you include the effect of extra CO2 in the atmosphere, which is quite frightening. Russia had a big problem last year, didn't it? Because their crops and harvests fail completely, and Russia produce a huge amount of the world's wheat. Yeah, and it's a huge country to feed as well. And I suppose the logical conclusion which you sort of hint at is if this trend continues and accelerates, because whatever, and regardless of the cause of, of this warming signal, there has been a warming and the warming seems to cause the yields to be eroded in the face of rising world population, things are going to get far more pressured. Yeah, it's a quite a scary situation, actually. Even if you do ignore the CO2, which this team did, there is still a temperature rise going on across the world. Diana, thank you. Well, if you're fans of what goes on underneath the waves, you may have heard of the box jellyfish. And if you haven't heard of the box jellyfish, these are fascinating creatures. They live in various places around the world, and their preferred habitat is in mangrove swamps. Mangroves are these trees that grow on shorelines, and they create a very unique habitat because the sea washes in around the roots, and it brings in various food sources, including things like plankton. That's what these tiny jellyfish, which are just one centimetre across, actually eat. But the interesting thing about box jellyfish, the species that uh, one group have been looking at, Tripedalia cystophora, is that the four faces of the box at the top of the jellyfish, because they're sort of cuboid shaped, these jellyfish, the four faces have eyes. In fact, each face has got six eyes. And of those six eyes, two are rather special because they have lenses in them. In fact, if you were to study them in detail, you would see that they work in almost the same way that the eyes that you and I have work. So they have a little lens and they can focus light. So what Anders Garm and his colleagues at the University of Copenhagen wondered, and they've published this in the journal Current Biology, is what does this jellyfish actually do with these eyes? What can it see? Why does it have them? Well, these jellyfish, as I say, live in mangrove swamps and they eat plankton but they eat plankton that are in the sunny bits, the illuminated areas. But if they swim too far from where they live, then there are no plankton out in the middle of lagoons, for example, and the jellyfish risk starving to death. So they have to be able to stay close to where the plankton are and close to home. And the scientists suspected that maybe these eyes are part of the navigational strategy. So they took a wide-angle camera lens and put it under the water 
and took photographs looking upwards to try to work out what these jellyfish would see because they had calculated that the jellyfish eye can see an arc of about 95 degrees, which, because of the way that water bends light, that's refraction when the light comes in through the surface of the water from the air, this means the jellyfish probably has a 180-degree field of view above the water. And by taking pictures with their camera, they calculated that the jellyfish could be expected to resolve the outline of trees and things above the water up to distances of perhaps eight metres. So to test this, what they did was to build a very big tank um, which floated in the water. So they put a whole bunch of jellyfish in the tank. This is done in Puerto Rico. And they then moved the tank different distances away from the shoreline. The idea of using this tank like this was that the jellyfish could see the sky and they were in water, which was seawater, and it was at the same temperature as the surroundings, but they wouldn't have any other cues like the smell of the shore. There would be no chemical signals, just the visual ones. At distances up to eight metres from the shore, the jellyfish all continuously swam towards the side of the tank closest to the shoreline. At distances beyond eight metres, which is the distance that the team found that their eyes couldn't have seen any further than that because basically the trees would go out of, uh, out of, out of view, the jellyfish just swam randomly. So this shows that even though these creatures are just one centimetre in diameter, they don't have a brain and they just have these ring neurons, these nerves that connect these different eye circuits together. They can use eye they can process visual data and use it to control their navigation and feeding behaviour, which, as the team point out in their paper, defeats the idea that a central brain is a prerequisite for advanced behaviour, which I think is absolutely incredible. Dave? Wow. Now for something completely different. Um, researchers at CERN have managed to trap anti-hydrogen atoms for far longer than ever before. Every particle we know has antiparticles, sort of anti-electrons, anti-protons, anti-neutrons, etc. And these seem to behave pretty much the same as their normal relations, but they have the opposite charge. And if, for example, an anti-electron meets a normal electron, they annihilate completely, releasing a huge amount of energy in the form of photons. Physicists don't understand why there's far more matter in the universe than antimatter, so they'd like to study antimatter in great detail to understand it. The problem is the only way to make antimatter is in violent collisions, so inevitably it ends up moving very, very, very fast, and unless your experiment is the size of a planet, you don't get very long to study it. Um, and whilst you can slow down charged particles magnetically, if you want to study the details of anti-atoms, for example, an anti-electron orbiting an anti-proton, so anti-hydrogen, they're uncharged, so it's very, very hard to accelerate and decelerate them. But in November, researchers at CERN managed to trap 38 atoms of anti-hydrogen for a maximum of about 0.2 seconds. And now they've managed to trap over 300 anti-hydrogen atoms for a maximum of 1,000 seconds, or about 17 minutes. Wow, yes, that's a long time. Which uh, actually gives them plenty of time to do experiments. So now they're going to move on to studying this anti-hydrogen and looking very carefully at the energy levels in the atoms. So what sorts of questions are they going to ask now they've got it bottled? so to speak, what will they be asking of it? Well, the first one is, is it, does it behave like normal hydrogen? Because sort of, is it energetically the same? Possibly even would it form an hydrogen, anti-hydrogen molecule? That sort of question. And the other really, really fascinating one is that no one knows whether antiparticles are attractive or repelled by gravity. Really? Yeah. Why um, shouldn't they be then? Well, I mean, they seem to be opposite in other ways. So it's just possible they might have an anti-gravity effect and they might be repelled. So if they weren't attracted by gravity, what would happen? And what could be the consequence for cosmology? Well, for example, that could mean that there's a load of anti-matter sitting out a long way away from all the normal matter, because if they repel each other, they're going to fly apart, and that means there could be far more anti-matter out there. No one seems to be able to see it, but there could be a lot more out there. That could entirely change the way we think the universe works. 
Fantastic. Thank you very much for that, Dave. Well, also in the news this week, scientists have discovered what happens when the brain gets its first ever whiff of nicotine. By studying nerve activity in the brains of rats which have been exposed to nicotine for the very first time, Professor Daniel McGee at the University of Chicago has found that the drug triggers changes in the brain's circuitry, which makes people much more likely to then get hooked. The dopamine system is this, this reward pathway. The effect of addictive drugs on behavior is dependent upon a change in dopamine signaling. And so that's been a focus for our work and many other groups. And we know that nicotine activates a specific type of receptor, a protein that's on the surface of of many different neurons. And these receptors are excitatory. They depolarize the cell. They cause it to fire more. More electrical activity is happening as a result of that receptor activation. And we know that that's the first step in the process. And, And what our most recent study has shown is that this actually initiates a whole cascade of events. One of the things that happens is that the the inputs that normally excite these dopamine cells become stronger. Those synaptic connections, the the points of communication between cells are stronger after nicotine exposure. So are you saying then that the nicotine comes in, it stimulates some dopamine-producing nerve cells to make more dopamine, which the brain experiences as a pleasurable experience, and at the same time, the cells that make that dopamine which are connected to by other nerve cells, begin in future to respond more strongly to those connections than they would have done before. That's a a nice description of what our data and others have shown, yes, that the, the connections are stronger. It's something that persists for days. And what we're looking at are the steps that lead to that change. So even after the nicotine is gone, these, these connections remain strong for between five and, and 10 days after exposure. And just to emphasize, that's a change that's happening to a, an animal that's not seen the drug before, and it's in response to one exposure. And when the person has had that change happen in their brain or in the animal, whatever the context is, mm. what then makes the person keep reaching for the cigarette packet? Because if their cells are now producing more dopamine because the connections to them are stronger, the cells are getting more excitable than they were before, why carry on smoking? (laughs) Yeah, it's a great question and one that we would love to have the complete answer to. But the transition from from occasional use or a single exposure to the full-blown addicted smoker is a long and complex process that we really don't understand. We know that there are huge adaptations happening in the areas that we're looking at, but also it's very likely that other brain areas begin to play critical roles. In adolescents who are experimenting with smoking, they will quite often sample cigarettes at a very low rate, like once a month, once every two weeks, once every week. One theory that I like a lot is the idea that the duration of the change in this increase in excitation in the pathway is contributing to that process and establishes a a framework for associating the tobacco and nicotine with pleasure. And then that basically sets the stage for the progression to full-blown addiction, which is going to be involving 
this process, but almost certainly many other things that we still don't understand. Does it transfer to other drugs? Because if you rewire this circuitry, which makes your brain much more prone to getting hooked on things, and then another drug comes along, does the tobacco pre-priming, the nicotine changes, mean that then some cocaine is much easier to get hooked on than it would do without this happening? It's certainly a possibility, and that, again, is beyond the scope of what we're looking at right now, but it does fit with the basic idea that co-use of a variety of different substances is quite common. So the idea that uh, the exposure to one drug is modifying or enhancing the rewarding effects of another drug makes perfect sense to me, in, in, as far as I understand the system, that this would be one of the ways in which that could happen. I think 75% of people who smoke say that they would prefer not to. That's the intended quit rate. The success rate, obviously, another matter. What about trying to use this information to help people to quit or to not get hooked in the first place? I do think that this adds to the public health message that I think is being broadcast quite effectively in many parts of the world, that exposure to tobacco products and nicotine is potentially addictive and it is long-term exposure has huge negative health consequences and there's just no argument there. The, the idea that even occasional and casual use of, of tobacco products could be inducing persistent effects on those parts of the brain that we know are important for reward and addiction, that totally fits with that. As far as the potential for treatment of the um, full-blown smoker who, who is, is trying to quit, we certainly hope that identifying steps in the process in terms of, of cellular events, molecular events that are happening inside neurons, understanding that better may certainly lead to the identification of new drugs that could increase the abysmal quit rate that is out there. I do think that the most important message is that there are changes happening with the very earliest exposures, and that is part of the progression. Well, they say it takes only one cigarette to get you hooked, and uh, that evidence looks like it's quite compelling, doesn't it? That's Daniel McGee, who's from the University of Chicago. He published that work this week in the Journal of Neuroscience. Diana. Well, also this week, researchers from the University of Pittsburgh have found a chemical similar to that found in red wine that can protect against radiation sickness. Specifically, they looked at gamma radiation and how its effects might be reduced by a substance similar to resveratrol. Now, resveratrol is an antioxidant commonly found in wines, grapes and nuts, and plants commonly use it to fight off bacterial and fungal infections. The reason the researchers think that an antioxidant might help in protecting against radiation exposure is that they might mop up the free radicals that gamma radiation can produce. And it's these ionised free radicals which do the cell damage. Publishing in ACS Medicinal Chemistry Letters, Michael Eppley and colleagues first tested the naturally occurring resveratrol on live cells in flasks, which were exposed to radiation. And they found that these cells were given some protection by the chemical, but when they tested it on a mouse, it had very little positive effect. So the researchers turned to another similar chemical known as acetyl resveratrol. And this time, the drug produced an 80% survival rate amongst the, amongst the mice. I can't say it. Uh, the difference between the two drugs' um, efficacies is most likely because the acetyl resveratrol is more slowly metabolised and therefore lasts longer to provide its protective effects.
And the authors also argued that this could be good news for cancer patients since the other candidates for anti-radiation drugs work by suppressing cell apoptosis, which is cell death, and could therefore aggravate a cancer. Because they think acetylresveratrol is using a different mechanism, it could be a better alternative and, they add, it's relatively cheap to produce. That's fascinating. Now, also this week, two predictions made from general relativity in 1918 and even before that have finally been tested. In 1918, two Austrian physicists worked out if Einstein's theory of general relativity was right, a large spinning object should drag space and time around it. This means that if you're standing near this spinning object, your idea of what isn't spinning will be different to someone who's out in deep space. But the problem is this effect is really very minute. You'd have to be near something incredibly heavy to notice it. And the technology to actually test that just hasn't been there up until now. It was in fact so difficult that the project has taken 52 years to produce an answer. Can I ask something just to clarify this? So if the object is perfectly symmetrically spherical and it spins... Does that still drag space around with it, you're saying? Yes. Or, or is it the fact that it's irregular, that the Earth has mountains and patches of its surface where there is a bit more gravity than other areas, let's say, and that's why it drags space-time around with it? General relativity just says that if something with mass is spinning, it should be dragging space-time around it, a bit like sort of syrup or something around a spinning object. American scientists have built a satellite called Gravity Probe B, This is an incredible mission using basically all the most funky physics out there. They've made incredibly smooth spheres covered with a thin layer of superconductor. They've got them spinning incredibly fast, acting as gyroscopes. If there's no external influences, these should keep pointing in the same direction. The satellite detects their direction using superconducting sensors called squids and compares their direction to a fixed star. The whole thing has to be cooled to make sure that the superconductors are working and to minimise thermal noise. And to reduce friction, they do this using um, a superfluid liquid helium, which has no viscosity at all. It's a bit like a superconductor. The satellite was launched in 2004 and took measurements for 18 months until basically all the helium ran out. It's taken them about five years to analyse the data properly. It's that difficult. And they've come out with a figure of about 10.3 millionths of a degree per year due to this frame-dragging effect. Um, is which, that is so. it real? Um, or, <laughs> or is that within the realms of, of statistical variation in the sensitivity of the experiment? Could it just be noise? Well, if you work out the general relativity and do all the equations, it comes out as about 10.8 millionths of a degree per year, um, which is a very good agreement. So this looks pretty real. Um, They also found a very good agreement with a second effect called geodetic precession. This doesn't only show quite how incredibly accurate Einstein's theories were 90 years ago with none of the modern technology, but also should allow astronomers to improve their models of how very heavy objects like neutron stars and black holes. I was going to ask you, what are the implications for astronomy and cosmology having confirmed this now? Basically, astronomers um, haven't really known that this effect was true, so they haven't necessarily put it into their models. Now they know it's there, they can put it into all their models. It's going to be a big effect only when you get a very, very heavy object, large object. It might have a small effect on spinning galaxies um, and definitely on things like neutron stars, which are incredibly heavy and spinning very, very, very fast. Well, if you'd like to read up on anything we've covered this week, the references and the transcripts for those news stories are online. They're at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists.
You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell and with Diana O'Carroll. And it's our science Q&A phone-in this week, which means that you call up and we'll answer your science questions for you. Steve's with us. Hello, Steve. Hiya. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Where are you? I'm in Whitchurch in Hampshire. Good to have you with us. What would you like to talk about? Um, the Earth's core. Um, has the Earth's core stayed hot for billions of years and is it cooling down? Yes, yeah, a very good question. Um, there are a number of answers to this. One of them is that the Earth is quite a big planet, as planets go, and it had a bit of heat to start with. So the particles that coalesced to make the early Earth, when they came together and accreted, they actually had some energy, and so when they got together, that energy was imparted into the Earth, so it had some embodied energy to start with. Then there's another effect, which is a gravitational one. Because gravity works through an object's centre of mass heavy things are pulled towards the middle and lighter things are therefore displaced above them. And when the Earth would have first formed, there would have been a mixture, a mishmash of the big stuff and the small stuff all mixed up. And over time, under the influence of gravity, the heavier things have settled towards the centre and the lighter things towards the surface. And that would have generated some frictional effects and therefore you've turned a bit of gravitational potential energy into some heat. Now those two former mechanisms they're quite minor contributions to where the Earth's heat come, comes from, but they're not insignificant. But by far and away the biggest player is what we call radiogenic heating. The Earth is a giant nuclear reactor, effectively. There are particles in the Earth's core and throughout the mantle which are radioactive. And when things decay radioactively, they can produce heat. And the bulk, by far and away, the vast majority of the Earth's energy is actually coming from the radioactive decay of these components. And they include things like thorium and also potassium. And interestingly, in recent years, scientists have discovered that there, well, there was always this big quandary. If potassium is the source of all this heat, why is there so little of it in the Earth's mantle and the outer surface of the Earth? It's light, so it should be up at the top, and it's just not there. Well, actually, it turns out that under very high pressures, potassium can form this interesting alloy with iron. And, of course, the iron is all in the core of the Earth. And so what scientists think has happened is that the potassium has sunk into the core of the Earth with the iron, and it's down there in the middle, decaying and producing a lot of the heat that we have warming up the Earth today. Where is all that heat going, and is the Earth cooling down? Not really. It's staying about the same temperature. Um, geolog geological estimates are that the Earth loses heat at the rate of about 50 terawatts. Um, that's about 50,000 one-gigawatt power stations worth of heat loss rate. And, you know, if you've got power stations pumping out energy at the rate of, of a gigawatt, that's about 50,000 of them. That's how fast the Earth is losing heat through the oceans and continental surfaces, volcanoes and so on. That means that those, those processes inside the Earth that I've mentioned must be producing heat energy at the same rate to balance things out because the Earth isn't really cooling down that much. Does that answer the question for you? It does indeed. Thank you. That's right. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Thank you. Have a nice evening. And you. Dave, this is definitely one for you. Francis sent this in. Hello, Naked Scientists. This is Francis Tapon, and I love your show. I have a question for Dave. If you take a light bulb and turn it on and off for one second on, one second off, one second on, one second off, and you keep doing that for the whole life of the light bulb, would it last twice as long as a light bulb that you didn't do that? I'm curious if maybe the there's some extra energy necessary for turning it on that would shorten the life a little bit faster. Please don't leave me in the dark on this question. Thanks. Brilliant. Okay, there's basically two different, well, there's at least two different failure modes for a light bulb filament. Um, one of them is essentially evaporation. 
Um, you've got a coil, a very, very thin coil of wire. It's sitting there at 2,000 degrees centigrade. Although tungsten has got a very, very, very high melting point, it's still, some of it is going to be evaporating all the time. Um, there's a little bit of gas in there which slows it down, but eventually um, the filament is going to evaporate away to the point at which somewhere there's a gap. That gap gets hotter and hotter and hotter, evaporates even quicker, and it fails and it breaks. So if you're turning the light bulb on and off, then that mode of failure is going to be a lot slower because it's only on half as time, and quite a lot of that time it's heating up and cooling down. So it's probably in that mode of failure will probably take maybe two, at least two, maybe three times as long for it to fail on average. But there's another mode of failure, which is just the thing breaking. Um, and if you're heating something up and cooling it down, heating up and cooling it down, you're producing all sorts of physical stresses on it. You're stretching it. As it heats up, it expands, and then as it cools down, it shrinks, stretching it, and you'll get metal fatigue. And so quite, I think, probably far, far, far bigger effect if you're doing that is going to be that it's just going to break due to metal fatigue and stretching, um, and it'll break far, far sooner than it would do normally. Can I ask you a sort of spin-off question around this, please, Dave? If you are using AC current where it's going plus, for sake of argument, then it goes down to minus, then it goes minus, and then back to the origin, zero again, that means that the bulb is turning on, it's turning off, then turning on again, and turning off. So in other words, with 50 cycles a second AC, 50 hertz AC, that means the bulb is effectively flicking on and off 100, what, 100 times a second. So does that knacker a bulb more than if you run a steady current like DC through it? Um it will probably have a slightly bigger effect, um, but the time it takes for the bulb filament to cool down is much more than 50, a fiftieth of a second. So maybe it's a tenth of a second. So the actual temperature of the bulb isn't fluctuating hugely on the, um, in a fiftieth um, as due, due to the AC. So it's approximately the same as DC. There will be some slightly larger forces, and also because it's effectively an electromagnet, um, there'll be some slight vibration. So as, as the electricity goes through this coil, it's going to produce a bit of a magnetic field, and that will apply some slight forces on it and slight vibration. So probably AC is slightly worth for it, but not very much because the heating up and cooling down time is much longer than the AC time. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Dave. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. We are answering your science questions. Email them in, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Glenn Carlson's on the phone with a question for you, Diana. Hello, Glenn. Hello. Over to you. Well, my question is, what's the difference between the Hobbit people, Homo floresiensis, uh, and African pygmies? Are the Hobbits considered to be Homo sapiens, and are they both evolved by uh, insular dwarfism? Right, it's a really interesting question. Um, first of all, yes, we do think that uh, Homo floresiensis is a different species, or at least most people do now. Um, and of course, African pygmies, pygmies in general, are generally thought to be Homo sapiens, um, although the term is quite old now and, and um, it's much better to use the sort of um, ethnically local names like Mabenga and Mabuti and Baka and that kind of thing. But basically, uh, floresiensis would live um, on the island of Flores about 100,000 years ago to about 12, 13,000 years ago. And some people have argued that it's a microcephalic human, which means that it had a really small head. Its brain case was about a quarter of the size of modern humans today. Whereas, of course, normal pygmy people have uh, perfectly normal-sized brains. And the other thing is that pygmy is actually a term that was developed earlier this century to just describe people who were you know, slightly shorter than usual. I think African pygmies are somewhere around four and a half feet, whereas Floresiensis was somewhere, I think, about three and a half feet tall. So is pygmy another word for bushman? Um, I don't know, actually. I just thought it was a, a term that anthropologists used. 
Well, because you talk about Kalahari Bushmen, and these are individuals very well adapted to life in the bush, and they could just run all day to run down animals, and they had interesting sort of body habitus, um, very, very well-developed posteriors, very big bums, (laughs) to put it another way. (laughs) Well, the the ones I read about um, actually mostly lived in the forests and sort of jungle-type habitats, and as a result, um, it's actually been found that they had slightly different ways of metabolising iodine, um, because it was just a very iodine-deficient environment, and that could have actually led to them being shorter. And the other thing is that um, they are actually genetically quite divergent from, from the rest of us. Uh, African pygmies are. It's thought they diverged about 60,000 years ago, which is actually quite a long time ago. Absolutely. So they would have, they would have overlapped with Neanderthals, for example. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the Flores people. Yes, yeah. certainly would. Diana, thank you very much. Well, if you have any questions for us, tweet at Naked Scientists, email chris at thenakedscientist.com or scribble on our Facebook page. You can get there by going to nakedscientist.com forward slash Facebook. Waiting in the wings is Dave's Kitchen Science, which he's got for you in about 15 minutes or so. Just tell people what you need them to get together if they want to do this. This is neat. You will like this. It's a very, very neat little trick. Uh, All you need is a a broomstick works well, a broom, uh, anything which has got a stick, something fairly constant diameter, and any old weight on the end. doesn't really matter. Basically just a stick with something on the end. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell and with Diana O'Carroll. We're answering your science questions this week, so send them in if you have something you'd like us to solve for you. Alan Freeman says on Facebook, how do companies like Google and Facebook and so on keep up with all the data storage needs of their users? Is it just a matter of permanently adding servers all the time? I think we can probably, we're all nodding our heads here. Yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, the difficult bit is making is being able to connect those all together in such a way as if one of them dies, it still carries on as if nothing happened. I think it's also worth reiterating the words of Professor Andy Hopper from Cambridge University Computer Sciences, who was in this studio a little while back, and his stat was that actually the internet produces almost as much CO2 as the airline industry around the world, and that's just data centres running servers to supply us with all the data that we are demanding. They're a good place to keep warm, though. But if you live in an old or historical building, and let's face it, here in Cambridge the chances of that are pretty high, then you're also probably aware that there can be downsides too. Sometimes all the features that make a building beautiful, such as skylights, architectural touches and masonry, contribute to it being a cold and drafty dwelling. So how do you make buildings that are hundreds of years old energy efficient without tearing them down and starting all over again? Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham went to London to find out. I'm at the back of Paddington Station in West London, next to a fairly busy road, and with me is Bob Lowe from the UK Energy Research Centre. One of his areas of research is how to improve the energy efficiency of cities. Now, Bob, you're a a building physicist, so let's look at this building here. It's what a five-storey building. We reckon between us, neither of us are architects, we reckon about 200 years old. It's got a, a rather nice cream facade, large sash windows surrounded by this ornate masonry and there's a balcony running the length of the building. Now, this is a, a nice building. You would not want to tear it down, but I guess it's, it, it's not energy efficient. Probably isn't energy efficient. Things will have been done to it over the years. It's almost certainly got some double glazing. In fact, I can see the double glazing there. It will have uh, modern uh, heating, ventilating systems inside, but basically the envelope is solid wall, uh, no insulation, very high heat loss. 
So if you want to do something about the energy consumption of London as a whole, you actually have to deal with hundreds of thousands of buildings like this in order to crack that problem. And nationwide, there are something like 7 million solid wall buildings. Just on the junction we're standing at, these buildings stretch all the way down the street into the distance. We are surrounded by them. So here's the question, how do you make this more energy efficient? We did have a look at the back uh, on our way round. And one of the things about buildings of this age is that very often the back is much, much plainer than the front. And it actually turns out that you have more wall area at the back because the back goes in and out with things that up in Yorkshire we call offshots. I don't know what you call them down here. Kitchen extensions and so on, often built in when the buildings were first built. So you've probably got 50% more wall area and... In principle, you can insulate it. The thing is, I suppose, you wouldn't design a modern city if you were trying to reduce its carbon footprint like this. Well, like the junction here, for example, with, with blocks of four roads going, going off in each direction, busy road here, and solid walls. And yet there are some things that the Victorians got very, very right indeed. Uh, these days, it's almost impossible to replicate this kind of urban environment under modern planning rules with rules for uh, roads, turning radiuses for traffic and so on. So this is very, very difficult to replicate. So what's good about this? Uh, What we have here uh, is very high density. It's then relatively straightforward to connect this to effective public transport systems, buses, the underground system, something that occurs in very, very few other cities uh, in the United Kingdom. I can think of maybe two or three cities that have uh, significant underground railway systems. So what we have here in transport terms is extremely efficient. And you've got to remember that energy consumption is only about 30% of total energy consumption in the UK, and transport is nearly as important and growing much faster. So if you're looking, to, if I use the phrase, to, to retrofit a city, to make it yes. greener, then you've got to look at all these things. You've yes. got to look at the cladding, the buildings, yes. the transport system, yes. where the energy comes from, the, the whole lot. That's right. At the moment, these buildings are almost certainly heated by gas, supplied with electricity from power stations uh, in the rest of the country. Well, uh, in terms of the gas, uh, in terms of the heating, it would be possible to heat the area here with hot water supplied from uh, nearby power stations through pipes, something that's done in many cities, many towns and cities in places like Denmark and Sweden, parts of Germany and so on. That would require significant interventions across the city. It would require a level of planning, which the United Kingdom has not been that good at over the last 20 or 30 years since I became involved in this kind of work. These are uh, real problems that don't go away. Professor Bob Lowe from the UK Energy Research Centre talking to Richard Hollingham. You can find more Planet Earth podcasts and links to Planet Earth resources at thenakedscientists.com forward slash planet earth. Thanks, Diana. Quick comment from Malk in Lowestoft, who is referring to the question Dave answered on light bulbs turning on and off quickly and probably having a shortened lifespan. He said, I always understood that electrical equipment lasts longer if it's left running rather than being turned on and off because of the power surge when the connection is actually uh, first made. Yeah, and there'll be both a heating effect and a bit of a surge effect. Uh, I've also got a question here from Maria G, and she's noticed something which I've noticed as well. Um, why is it that when you go to the beach and spend some time in the water, and then uh, she's been floating around for a bit, and then she comes uh, back home, and just as she's falling asleep, it feels as if you can feel the movement of the waves on her? 
I've had this. Have you had this, Diana? I've certainly had this. <laughs> it's very common, it turns out. I thought it was just me being weird. In fact, the records go back to the 1700s. Uh, Erasmus Darwin, who was Charles Darwin's grandfather, he actually recorded it. It's possibly one of the first, if not the first, recorded description of this condition. And what Darwin wrote was, those who have been upon the water in a boat or ship so long that they have acquired the necessary habits of motion of that unstable element, at their return on land, frequently think in their reveries, as dreams, or between sleeping and waking, that they observe the room they sit in or some of its furniture to liberate like the motion of the vessel. This I have experienced myself and have been told that after very long vo voyages it is some time before these ideas entirely vanish. The same is observable in a lesser degree after having travelled some days in a stagecoach and particularly when we lie down in bread and compose ourselves to sleep. He wrote that in 1796. It's reassuring to know that people are still having the same problem today. Um, this actually is a medical condition. The fancy name for it is mal de débarquement, in other words, illness of disembarkation, feeling unwell when you get off the boat. And for some bizarre reason, it appears that the incidence is highest in women in their 40s. And it may just be that women in their 40s are more prone to going on cruises than other people of other demographics. I don't know. Um, but it's amongst them that you tend to get most of the reports medically. Luckily, it, it generally is a temporary thing. What scientists think is going on is that you have in your head uh, a, a model of the world and how you are relating to it. In other words, if the world is moving, then you're modelling that movement and working out how to compensate for it, either with movements of your head and eyes and your balance system, so that you don't fall over. Well, when you're on a ship, because of the constant movements, then your brain has to detune or damp down that response a little bit, because if it didn't, you would continuously be overcorrecting for it, which might actually underlie why you get seasick in the first place and why after a period of time at sea, you then stop feeling seasick. So, when you then come back onto land, when the signals being fed into this system, which models how you're interacting with the world, when those signals are coming in, now you're not continuously in motion, so the very thing that was expecting you to be always in motion is no longer always seeing motion, and as a result, the model is predicting how you should respond to the movements around you incorrectly. So as a result, you experience these rather strange sensations as though the world is continuously moving. And it takes a little while to unlearn this le newly learned behaviour and to revise your model so that you then don't keep jumping around all over the place. Bizarre, I know, but there you go. Mal de débarquement. Great question. Thank you very much, Maria. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Diana O'Carroll and with Dave Ansell, answering all your science questions. And we've actually got Tom on the phone. Hello, Tom. Hi, how are you doing? Very well. Where are you? I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. Ah, I bet it's warm there. Uh, 92 so far, and it's about 10.45 in the morning. Oh, so what are you hoping for, 130 today or something like that? No, no, it's only supposed to get up to 100. <laughs> it's a dry, it's a a dry heat. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a dry heat. Well, talking of things that are the opposite of hot, very cold, you have a cold-inspired question for Dave. Yes, I do. I put a bottle of Dasana purified water in there in my freezer, and it was like 16.9 ounces. It sat in the freezer for about two hours, and I, when I took it out, it was, it was liquid. And I set it on the table, and this was in my garage, and within about 20 seconds, you could see it freeze from the top of the bottle down. Never seen that happen before. What could possibly cause that? 
Okay, it's a beautiful effect. It's called super, uh, super saturation or um, super cooling a liquid. Um, what's going on is that um, 0 degree centigrade is just the temperature um, below which water is more stable as a solid than as a liquid. That doesn't mean you can't cool water below 0 degree centigrade, and that's because forming a very, very small crystal is actually quite takes quite a lot of energy and it's quite unstable. So um, if water's below, it could be down minus three. You can actually super cool water maybe down to about minus, um, almost minus 20 degrees centigrade. Um, if it's below zero, um, every time a little tiny crystal starts to form, it just kind of gets knocked apart. And so there's no small crystals there. And so there's nowhere that the ice crystals can grow from and the whole thing can freeze. But if somewhere you get a crystal which is bigger than a certain critical size, um, it's stable. It's much more stable for that crystal to grow and grow and grow. And so you tend to get a few very small crystals um, spreading out and the whole thing freezes very, very quickly um because it's below zero and you get that effect it also works beautifully with sodium acetate and you there are hand warmers based on this principle you heat them up it basically melts the liquid inside you cool them down again you flick a little clicky thing and that releases some crystals which causes the whole thing to crystallize and this of course releases lots of heat which warms your hands nicely Dave, thank you very much. Diana, here is one from Stephen in Brentwood. He says, since black absorbs heat and white, white reflects it, why aren't Native African people white to cool down by reflecting heat and Eskimos black to absorb more heat and warm themselves up? Why have they evolved to be the way they are? Right, so logically it should be the case that if you have pale skin, it's going to reflect more light and therefore more heat and would be more suited to living in warmer, sunnier places. But what what is actually happening is that people with darker skin have more melanin, more pigment actually in their skin, and this prevents the short wavelengths of light, the UV, from penetrating deep into the skin. And it also means that the skin can produce vitamin D in suitable levels. Whereas if you live in northern climes, in places where there's less sunlight, so for example in the UK, then it's much better to have paler skin, which allows more sunlight to get into your skin and more vitamin D to be produced. And vitamin D is great for strengthening bones. It prevents you from getting diseases like rickets, which obviously would be a very selective against a human population if they were living in northern Europe. And one thing I would add to that, we interviewed Nina Jablonski, um, Professor of Anthropology at Penn State University in the States on this show, and she also made a very good point about this, which was that UV radiation damages folic acid, which you need for the development of the nervous system. So if you become folic acid depleted, you get diseases like spina bifida. And so in countries like Africa, where there is a lot of UV in the sunlight because it's very sunny, if you don't protect yourself with lots of melanin, then you will deplete your folic acid. You'll have an excess of neural tube defects like spina bifida, and this would manifest in a cost to reproductive fitness to the population. So because there is so much sunlight, Africans can afford to have dark skin and still make enough vitamin D and not lose their folate. But once you get up to the parts of the latitudes that we live in where it's miserable all the time... um, Vitamin D becomes the real problem, and you need to make enough vitamin D so you have to have pale skin, and there's so little UV because we hardly ever see the sun anyway that it doesn't become a problem from the folic acid depletion neural tube defect perspective. So, I mean, that was her argument for the reason. So there you go. Uh, Now, I reckon it's time to talk kitchen science. I've been waiting for this uh, for a little while because you've filled the studio, Dave, with um, various kitchen accoutrements. There's a broom up the wall, mop on the floor. What are you up to? 
This is a lovely little experiment, which actually I just do some name dropping, which was showed to me by um, Johnny Ball, who's one of my um, childhood um, oh, my hero too, heroes. Yeah. Um, okay, so for this, you just need a, something smooth, kind of stick shaped ish. Doesn't matter um, where the weight is in it. So I'll get for one for you, Diana. Going to do with that thing. <laughs> Someone's written on the running order that I'm going to be the victim. <laughs> so, okay. Okay, I'm holding so a broom. This is very, very simple. Um, basically, I want you to um, hold, stick your two fingers out, hold it up just on two fingers, kind of quite a long way apart on the broom. Okay, right. Um, and now, I w- what I'm going to ask you to do is shut your eyes and very slowly move your fingers together. Oh, what do you think is going to no. happen? It's just going to fall off my fingers, isn't it? Okay, so gently move them together. Oh, I can't move the other one closer because ah, that's I didn't interesting. You're going to make her do it with her eyes shut. <laughs> keep going, keep going. So, okay, I'm moving both of my fingers together, but only one of them is moving. And keep going. Any ah, oh, it's so going to fall. No. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. It didn't. It didn't. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> so, yeah, I've done the same thing with the mop. Um, so as you move your fingers together... Um, for some reason, it, it's, not, it's not falling over, it's not tipping over, even when they get very, very close together. And what's going on is that as you're, there's, there's a certain amount of weight on each of your two fingers, and if one finger is much clo- is close to the centre of mass than the other, um, then it's going to get more weight on it, so there's going to be more friction. So as you push your fingers together, it's going to slip on the other finger. So the other finger gets close to the centre of mass. And it keeps on going until there's more weight on that finger than the other finger, and so it's sort of you get this sort of negative feedback effect. So if it goes wrong, then it slips on the other side, and you can slowly move them all the way to the centre, and you can find exactly where the balance point, the centre of mass is, and it works beautifully. Yeah, so that's exactly what I experienced. And the finger that wouldn't move, there was just too much force acting down on it and sort of creating that friction, so it just wouldn't go anywhere. Indeed. I've got a question, which is, because you mentioned Central Mass Day, this is highly relevant. Um, Nick Day, at Nick Day 2 on Twitter, says, if the period of a pendulum is dictated by its length and not the weight of the bob, why do they put pennies on Big Ben's pendulum? That's all about Central Mass too, isn't it? It is. Um, the period of the pendulum is entirely to do with the distance from where it's swinging to the centre of mass. Um, and the trick is where they put the pennies. They don't put them in the middle of the pendulum bob. They always put them on the top. So if you put a penny on the top of the pendulum bob, it's actually adding some mass at the top of the pendulum bob. So that makes a, it effectively makes the pendulum slightly shorter, so it will run slightly quicker. And if you sort of put some weight on the bottom, it might effectively make it slightly longer, so it will run slightly slower. Bet they don't use their fingers to work out where the centre of mass is on Big Ben's pendulum, though, eh? I wouldn't know. <laughs> Diana, quick one for you from Peter Fryson, who says, why do fingernails have horizontal marks on them sometimes? OK, well, uh, fingernails actually have sort of two sets of ridges. So you can have vertical ones, which just go along the length of the nail, assuming your nails are longer than they are wide. I think mine are fairly. Um, and they are just those ridges are just caused by the variations in the cells which line your nail bed. But you can also get these horizontal ridges. And I think it's generally thought that... mainly uh, horizontal ridges are caused by trauma to the nail bed Um, and you can also get illness events which cause all sorts of interesting things to your nails you get white ridges and get the little white marks as well but I think that's generally attributed to trauma I was thinking about why those marks might be white and I think it might be similar to the reason that when you smash glass or you grind up glass and make sand again um, or you make uh, water freeze and make little ice crystals like snow it's white 
whereas the thing it started out as was translucent. Because if you look at the nail, um, it's a, a sort of crystal structure of keratin, the protein. And I think if you traumatise it, you probably get little fragments of bits of protein all hanging around and water in there and other, other debris, all of which probably bend light all over the place and does exactly the same thing as snow. And so it reflects more light back, so you get a sort of white patch. I reckon that's probably the reason. Yeah, a lot of people talk about having zinc deficiencies or various other mineral and vitamin deficiencies which cause this, but it seems that it is actually something more trauma-related. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. It's Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Diana O'Carroll. We're answering all your science questions on The Naked Scientist this week. If you have a question for us, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. We're also taking tweets. You tweet at Naked Scientist. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. And this is The Naked Scientists with Chris, Dave and with Diana. Now, Dave, Eric Forsage says, Is it better to suntan lying flat or standing up? As we head into spring, my wife and I have had a debate concerning the efficacy of tanning while lying down as compared to walking around. My wife contends that lying stationary while tanning is more effective than walking about with one shirt on. I have contended but the same number, that the same number of photons would strike the subject regardless of movement. What do you think? Um, I think it depends where you're living. Um, if you're living on in the equator, or it's, especially if it's near midday, then the sun's going to be right above you, at which point um, you're going to get the maximum sunlight, per, assuming you want to get a suntan or sunburn, depending how it goes, the way you're going to get the maximum amount of sun per square centimetre or per square metre or whatever on you is to be at right angle, to get your skin at right angles to the sun. Um, so then if you're somewhere near the equator, then if you lie flat, then that's probably going to beat your best bet. If you're living somewhere a long way north, so somewhere up near Sweden or um, Finland, um, then the sun's very low on the horizon, and the best way to get yourself at right angles to the sun is to stand upright. So I think quite often in Russia and Sweden and places, you get people who um, go out sunbathing standing up next to a wall. Um, and yeah, I think how much you move around, I think the only advantage of not moving around is that possibly time you sort of go half to sleep and time passes quicker, so you you get more sun without really noticing it. I was going to say, perhaps a more consistent all over tan. I mean, any tanning techniques, Diana? <laughs> the only uh, advice I could give is how to become a lobster, I'm afraid. <laughs> That's the only colour I go in the sun. Joanna from Norwich is wondering how can we actually see atoms, and if so, how? Well, the answer is yes, you can. In fact, it was the 30th anniversary recently of a fair iconic image that was published by IBM and they actually wrote the words IBM using atoms of xenon which they manipulated around on a surface uh, using a scanning tunneling electron microscope so yes you can see atoms but you're not really seeing the atoms what you're seeing is the electron field created by the electrons around the atom and how they produce a current when they interact with a very fine tip uh, on an electron microscope. Um, one more recent study that got done could actually image atoms in a slightly different way. What this study did was to take a sheet of graphene, this is the single layer of carbon atoms, rather like honeycomb, which is a single layer of atoms that stacked up make graphite, but if you peel away single layers you get graphene. And what this particular group in America did was to sprinkle some molecules onto this graphene sheet and then run a scanning tunneling electron microscope across the surface. And because the graphene is so regular in structure, it's easy to mathematically subtract the effect of the graphene being there from any other signals that you get. And this enables them to actually see the structure and shapes of molecules. So if you wind your mind back to the days of 
chemistry when your teacher would draw a chain of, say, butane, four carbon atoms all linked together and draw the sort of a kinky line of these atoms. That's the atoms being bent and kinked rather than the atoms being kinky, if you see what I mean. Um, then, you know, you'd say, well, how do they actually know it looks like that? Well, you look at these pictures that they've published recently and they really do look like that. It's absolutely fantastic. Now, Dave, I think you'll answer this one very well. It's a text message. It doesn't say who it's from. They say, love this show, downloaded all the podcasts, um, nakedscientist.com slash podcast, by the way. Um, he says, or she says, why, when, you're t- you're, you, when you have a cup of cola, you're told to rinse the cup out with water before you fill it with cola to stop it frothing over. Why is this? This is an effect very, very related to the freezing water we were talking about earlier. Um, basically there's lots of gas carbon dioxide dissolved in the cola and as soon as you release the pressure that's much more stable as a gas rather than dissolved in the coca-cola or other forms of cola are of course available Um, these but in order to form a bubble you've got to create a whole lot of extra surface that costs lots of energy Um, so bubbles are only stable when they're above a certain size um, if you've got a very, very clean glass, there's nowhere for a bubble to form, so it takes a very, very long time for the bubbles to get formed, um, and so it doesn't froth up. If you've got lots of dirt on the bottom, um, some of that can be hydrophobic. That makes it easier for bubbles to form. It also might trap some gas, so you've already got a bubble there to start with. And as soon as you've got lots of bubbles there, you'll get lots more bubbles, and they'll grow very quickly, and they'll turn into a froth and make a horrible mess. And I guess the other spin-off of that is that if you do clean the glass first your drink is going to stay fizzier for longer if the bubbles are forming more slowly. Totally, there'll be more gas in there for longer because it's escaping less quickly. And Ben out there doing the production says that the same works for champagne, which stops you wasting any of it, which is the really important thing. I've got a question probably for you, Chris. It's from Adam. He says, how does blood actually clot? Very good question. Um, I suppose the simplest way of thinking about this is it's a bit like glue in a tube in the sense that you've got various components inside the glue in the tube and it's only when they get squeezed out of the tube and they meet the foreign environment of the air and the surface outside the tube that they then get sticky and stick things together. Now, in blood are several elements. They include little bits of cells called platelets which are programmed to recognise holes in blood vessels and bind onto them. There are also proteins which are dissolved in the blood which are able to work like tiny pairs of scissors and cut other proteins to produce a various, well, what we would call, I suppose, a cascade of changes which culminates in the formation of what we call a fibrin network. This looks like a fishing net inside a blood vessel which traps blood cells in it and that acts as a plug to block a hole in a blood vessel, for example. So if you look at how it works, if you have a blood vessel and you injure it, then what happens first is that the platelets which are circulating in the blood recognise the fact that when the blood vessel is punctured, there are now foreign surfaces exposed to the blood. The platelets bind on and they release various factors that trigger the blood vessel to constrict so it gets narrower, that that reduces blood loss through the area. It also starts to recruit these other proteins dissolved in the blood, the coagulation factors, activating them sequentially. They cut each other, activating other coagulation factors and culminating in the production of this cleavage of a protein called fibrinogen to make this fibrin network and all of this happens in a very short space of time literally seconds for platelets blocking up the hole to minutes for the formation of one of these fibrin networks and once the vessel uh, has then been plugged or the gap in the vessel has been plugged then the cells locally which line the vessel overgrow the area which has been breached and they establish a new smooth lining to the blood vessel and then the clot is slowly metabolized away by other kinds of cells called macrophages. Does the same thing happen if you injure a blood vessel which is actually inside your body and it's not exposed to the air and the foreign environment? 
Exactly right, because the thing that the the platelets and some of these other factors are recognising is collagen, the main building block of connective tissue. And the proteins, including one called von Willebrand's factor in the bloodstream, are, they are able to recognise the presence of collagen, which is not normally ever seen inside a blood vessel or in an, a healthy organ, because they're normally kept separate from it. So whenever that interaction occurs, then this tells the factors in the bloodstream that a vessel must have been breached, and therefore you activate the clotting system and it plugs up the hole wherever this occurs. And normally blood vessels keep themselves clear because the lining of the blood vessel, the endothelium, produces various factors, which is... Uh, which are anti-thrombotic. They antagonise or prevent blood from clotting. And obviously if you damage the blood vessel, you remove that anticoagulative ability, so it shifts the blood into a pro-coagulation state, and then it starts to clot. And talking of hard questions, uh, it's time for our question of the week, Diana. Yes, this week, even though it's so lovely and warm outside, it's freezing in this studio. Hello, this is Eugeny from Russia, and here is my warm question from cold Russia. Human is a warm-blooded animal, but I want to know how does human's body heat itself? Thank you. What is the body doing to stay warm? I'm Roger Thomas, a professor of physiology in the University of Cambridge, and I do lecture to medical students on thermoregulation. But what we should start by saying is that we are all producing heat all the time by the chemical processes in our bodies. I mean, for example, the heart pumping blood around the body uses energy derived from glucose, and the energy, the mechanical energy from glucose is produced with waste heat. So all the time the heart's working, it's producing excess heat. All the other chemical processes going on in the body, digesting food, thinking, and so on. The amount varies. I mean, after a heavy meal, you produce a lot more heat as you digest it than normally. But I expect the questioner really wants to know about producing heat when you need more than normal. And there are two mechanisms there. One, I think is very familiar to most of you, shivering. This involves involuntary contractions of large muscles, which generates heat, wastefully as it were, but in this case you need the heat to keep warm. The other mechanism is known as non-shivering thermogenesis, or heat produced by mechanisms other than shivering, and this primarily involves brown fat. These are cells in patches of tissue all over the body, particularly near the heart, in the shoulder blades and so on, which are very important in newborn babies who have a lot of trouble regulating their body temperature. But in adults, it's also found, although this has been controversial, and this works by simply burning glucose to produce heat rather than any other form of energy. So it's 100% heat production process, and this this tissue is located near blood vessels, so it warms up the blood and warms the whole body. Brown fat is great for burning glucose and producing heat. It has been hypothesised that people who live in houses without central heating tend to have higher proportions of brown fat. But then central heating is another form of thermoregulation, along with clothes and blankets. And a paper published in Obesity Reviews in January actually showed evidence that living in warmer houses is contributing to obesity, and this could be related to reduced proportions of brown fat against white fat. Well, if that hasn't been enough blubber for you, what about this question? This is Rob from Utah in the United States. I recently took a trip to SeaWorld in San Diego, California. I really enjoyed the trip and the many animal shows. But as I was sitting and watching the whale show, it occurred to me that the music they were playing for was really loud. As water is more dense, it should be a better conductor of sound. 
if this is the case, are those poor whales being deafened by the repeated exposure to all this loud music, destined to never again enjoy whale song? Does all that music bother the whales or do they like it? Answers on the forum at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. You can Twitter us at Naked Scientists or you can email Chris at thenakedscientists.com. Diana O'Carroll. Thank you, Diana. Well, that is all we have time for this week. Thank you very much to our guest, Dan McGee, and to our production team, Tom Simpkins and Ben Valsler. And thank you very much for sending in your science questions. Next week, we're exploring the issues of pisciculture, quite literally how to farm fish and shellfish and also marine plants, as well as exploring new ways to reduce the impact that these fish farms will have on the environment. If you have any science questions for us, then do tweet them to at Naked Scientists, write them on our wall at thenakedscientist.com forward slash Facebook, or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and UK Fast. For more information, Look us up online at thenakedscientists.com.